Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the ODI. My name is Anna Scott. I'm head of content here, and I'm delighted this week to introduce Jonathan Bourne from the of University College London to talk about empty homes and house prices. Um, there'll be some time for questions at the end. If you're following online, please use the hashtag ODI Fridays, and we'll ask any questions that you have at the end. Okay, over to you. Hi, my name is Jonathan Bourne. Um, I'm doing a PhD in complex networks at, the UC at UCL. However, um, I have an unhealthy obsession with uh, empty homes, and that's uh, what I'm here to talk about. So, um, <coughs> I actually got into this topic, um, I used to live abroad, and when I moved back to the UK, um, whenever I seemed to get in a taxi or something like this, the taxi drivers were always talking about how uh, house prices in London were so high because foreigners were buying them and leaving them empty. And uh, first I ignored this and just thought, well, you know, whatever. And then the people I was doing my masters with started saying similar things about the places where they were living. Um, a lot of them were living in sort of condos in the center of London. And they said, you know, it's really weird um, where I live uh, the, the, most of the flats seem empty, the lights are never on, apart from a few. And then I started reading in the newspapers that there was this concept of ghost housing where people buy a house and just literally leave it empty, and this concept of empty homes. And this also spread from beyond London to areas like Cornwall and Cumbria, uh, where the situation was slightly different, and instead of it being uh, rich foreigners buying property, it was rich Londoners buying property. And I thought this was very interesting. I thought it was a very interesting separation. And I also thought it was interesting how little actual evidence beyond anecdotal there was. And I wanted to see how much sort of more quantitative data underpinned these beliefs. Um, and so that's what I set about doing. And so this uh, presentation is kind of a bit broken into two bits. One bit is this the sort of introduction explains how I got the data, uh, because that was, is quite important. And the, the next is obviously when I got the data, how I analyzed it. So, um, what, what I talk about is not empty homes as such, but something called low use properties. And that's, I think quite an important distinction. So a low-use property is a property which no one lives in, has no full-time resident. And that is sort of distinct from an empty home or a second home, because if there is a property with no one apparently living in it, it's very difficult to say why this is. And uh, an academic called Chris Paris uh, in 2009 discussed something called um, leisure-related investments, which is that when people buy a property, uh, that's not their primary home. It's on a scale somewhere between leisure and investment. And in that you can own multiple properties for leisure and investment purposes. So say you inherit a house from your grandmother, that might be very leisure related. You have quite a strong emotional uh, link to it. Whereas if you just buy a house simply to flip it, that's very investment. But really, most of them are on a scale. And, and this leads to a, a difficulty using the word home, sort of empty home or second home, because if you can have an unlimited amount of second homes and the word home has some special connotation to it, what does it mean? And I actually found I was getting a lot of pushback talking about <coughs> second homes, but people going, yes, but I really like a second home, or yeah, but my second home's very special to me. And what I'm trying to do is separate that emotional link with the sort of effect it's having. So if, if an area is 50% second homes, the people who live there just don't care 
if you have an emotional link to it, what they're interested in is the effect it has on local house prices. So that's why it's property and not low-use homes, because it describes this gamut from pure leisure to pure investment. Um, and I refer to them as LUPs just because it's much quicker than saying low-use property. Um, another thing I just want you to keep in mind um, as we've got the leisure-related investment is also the concept of supply and demand. So we've just had the budget. There's talk of, I forget how much, many millions it was uh, to invest in the building of new homes. And the underlying concept there is if there's not enough supply and a lot of demand, prices will go up. And so that's you know, kind of a, a thing we need to think about. So the data I got was, was quite a lot. It took about a year to get the data. I did it through uh, FOI requests. Um, as you can see, I've got a lot of, or several large cities in the UK. I've got the whole of London, the whole of Manchester, I think the whole of Birmingham now, uh, Leeds, uh, Newcastle, and maybe some other ones as well. A lot of the southern England, a lot of western England, almost the entire of northern England, and a large proportion of Wales. So I tried to get a spread across, the, uh, across England and Wales. I couldn't include Scotland because of the way their system works um, to try and cover, uh, get a, a representative sample. And, and getting the data is obviously quite important because if I go to a council and go, yeah, can you give me the addresses of all your empty homes? They obviously say no, because I can then turn up and burgle all the empty homes or live in them or whatever. So I need to have, get that information without breaching the Data Protection Act. Um, I decided to use something called lower super output areas, which are ONS geographies. So they're a standardized ge government geography, which has between 450 and 1500 homes in it. This means that it's not possible to identify individual properties when they're empty. Yeah, the, so the geography that I used was called an LSOA, Lower Super Output Area. And you can download all of this data from the ONS. Um, that's completely open. The problem was that local authorities don't have this information and have no way of doing that link. So I needed to develop a template for them which would do the work that they were unable to do. Um, and it also obviously then needs to work for all, uh, all different local authorities because they all have slightly different systems. I ended up making a template looks a bit like this. This is from Kensington and Chelsea. Um, what I did is actually returned from Kensington and Chelsea. So when I send it to them, there's actually uh, another column here, which is postcode. And so what the, the local authorities do is they, um, they put the a column in, paste in a column of all their exemptions, their council tax exemptions. So what I'm going to them is give me your council tax data because councils know who's paying them and who's not. So they paste in a column all their council tax exemptions and discounts, which includes broadly empty homes, and uh, the postcode of those houses. And a lot of councils, they don't even want to give you the postcode. So what I tell them to do is paste them in. I made this template which looks up the LSOA codes they can then delete the postcode and I get the LSOA, no breach of the Data Protection Act, everyone's happy, it's very fast to do. Um, I think I was on, on the phone with one council who were having a bit of trouble, we did it in two minutes, it's, it's really quite fast. So there were a few problems getting the data, um, almost every council said that I was breaching the Data Protection Act and so we'd have to have a couple of discussions about that. Uh, a few refused to use the template, um, citing uh, uh, policy. Um, these were almost never the case. Um, 
really all the problems I had with the councils were they were afraid of making a mistake. And this was something I really got out of the FOI process is that a lot of councils are very concerned about the blowback that will happen if they make a mistake when they give out, if they give out the wrong data. So they were quite cautious. Um, there were, I'm, I'm gonna name a little name. There were only a few people who were sort of very unhelpful. Um, in, in one case, uh, Westminster Council spent seven months trying to avoid giving the data. Um, and, and that was a very interesting interaction because they were basically being deliberately difficult. Um, in the end, we came to an agreement and, and they did give me the data, so that was good. But it was interesting seeing how some councils are very helpful. Often the councils in Wales actually were really, really helpful, whereas uh, some more in London were a lot less helpful. So what did I end up with? I ended up with, you can see here on this map, um, data which told me where in each council the majority of the LSOA are. So this map here um, is Kensington and Chelsea. And what you can see in the, in the, in the sort of southeast of Kensington and Chelsea, around Hyde Park and around uh, Knightsbridge, um, you have a concentration of a lot of low-use properties. So the colour scheme shows that the red areas are between 25 to 100, dark orange 20 to 25 percent, uh, light orange 10 to 20, and the lowest rank is, is 0 to 10. And I think, I think the, the one right closest to Hyde Park is about 30 percent low-use. So that's it's close to one in three domestic properties in that part of Kensington and Chelsea do not have uh, a long-term resident. And Kensington and Chelsea overall has about 10,000 uh, low-use properties and um, the value of these properties, which I calculated and we'll talk a bit more about later in a minute, is about 21 and a half billion pounds. So it's, it's, a, it's a quite a substantial uh, amount of property. And one of the interesting things about this map is there appears to be a relationship between the value of properties and the amount of low-use properties. If you look at the top, or if you look at the bottom left, that's the world's end estate, which is obviously a council uh, estate in, in Kensington and Chelsea. Um, much fewer low-use homes. And up in the north, um, there's, uh, let's see if I've got my mouse. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of count more council homes sort of north of Notting Hill in Kensington and Chelsea. Around here is about where uh, the Grenfell Tower is. And so that's an interesting idea. And it says, so the, the question is, can we test to see whether there's a, there is some sort of price, low-use homes relationship. And to do that, what I wanted to do was check the sort of expected distribution. So if, if, the, if these homes were equally distributed, this map would be a single colour because everything was just randomly purchased. And I want to know if this, what we're seeing here, is significantly different from random. So I used a system known as a graphical model. Um, and a sampling method. So I sampled repeatedly across the data and built up many, many of these samples. And then that gave me a sort of distribution that I could test. And what I was kind of interested in was breaking up the houses into price classes. So these are based on, uh, on Savile's definitions, a bit out of date, so I shifted the price slightly up, uh, where their Savile's class of a, of, a, of a cheap house is up to half a million quid. Uh, mid up to 750, upper up to 2 million prime, 2 to 12, and super prime, everything over 12 million pounds. So what I was wondering is, do we have, how different from expected are these classes of homes? And so this is for Kensington and Chelsea. And what you can see 
is that there is a definite skew. So this y-axis is how different from expected. So if I expect to see 100 lower-priced class houses and I actually see only 80, then you'll get you know, uh, 0.8 as your score and you'll get a difference of minus 20%. So anything that's on the zero line here is what we, more or less what we'd expect. So upper, we see more or less as many upper houses, as upper class houses, as we would expect given the number of upper class houses in Chelsea. What we also see, though, is that there's a lot less uh, lower and mid-priced houses than we would expect given the number that are in Ch Kensington and Chelsea, and also a lot more. So it's about 17% less and 17% more prime and super prime. And so this does sort of reflect a bit on the map. We see that the houses are concentrated in expensive areas, and that once we do an analysis, we can see there are significantly more expensive properties being held as low-use properties in Kensington and Chelsea. Interesting, does it apply across the whole of England and Wales? Obviously, I don't have that, but I do have 110 councils. That's quite a large number. And when we check that, yes, it does. Across England and Wales, of 110 uh, local authorities that I have, we see that lower and mid, there's, there's so many of them that the variance is very low. Lower is slightly below zero, but more or less the same. These are effectively close to zero. Upper, there seems to be a significant amount more sort of generally expensive homes. Prime, definitely about 100% more than we would expect given the amount of prime properties that are in uh, England and Wales, or the parts of England and Wales are looked at, and the same with super prime. Super prime has a lot larger variance because um, there's a lot fewer of them. So of lower homes, there's, I can't remember, you know, one and a half million, whereas uh, super prime, there's, you know, 300 or something. It's, it's, it's a very small, so you get a large variance. Um, the prime and upper, though, they've, they've got quite a small variance. So that's interesting. But is it, so we, we've seen it's for Kensington and Chelsea, there's a skew, there's a tendency to more expensive LUPs. Across England and Wales, there's a tendency to more expensive LUPs. Is it the same across all 110? Do we see exactly the same pattern in all 110 councils? No, we don't. In 70% of the councils, LUPs are more expensive than the council average. But in 30% of the councils, it's the other way around. This is quite interesting in some ways it's encouraging because we see that there's not just a single pattern there is some sort of nuance in there and so the next question is how predictable can we separate these two types of property the two types of councils can we say if you tell me the name of a council and you give me some information about it i can tell you whether the lups are going to be more expensive than the council housing average or that the the, the average house price in that local authority or less so to do that, I made uh, a regression model, a type of uh, statistical model. And what I was interested in doing is looking at the uh, variables of this model and seeing if they told me anything interesting. So what I did was I made a, what's called a logistic regression. It uh, separates things into two different classes, the class being cheaper than the council average or more expensive than the council average. And I used these three variables here. And these variables were important to use because they're easily available. They're, uh, they're, uh, they're an open data set. Extent is uh, multiple, uh, an, an indices of multiple deprivation. And that's available from a government data set, the indices of multiple deprivation. The price data comes from uh, the land registry, which is also can be downloaded. And the vacance perk comes from a data set, which is produced, I 
think twice a year and gives the number of long-term vacant properties in each council in the country. And a long-term vacant property is a, is a property that's been empty for six months or more and is inherently a LUP. It's a domestic property, no one's living there. So using these three uh, variables, um, I made a thousand different models or a thousand models that were sort of split the data in slightly different ways and then aggregated them together to make sure that their coefficients weren't very widely spread and these efficiencies were sort of broadly reliable. And what I saw was that the more deprived an area, so LUPs in an area with high deprivation are more likely to be cheaper than the local area average. So if you have a LUP and it's in, or a random LUP and it's in an area that is highly deprived, that LUP is likely to be cheaper than the houses around it. On price, however, it's the opposite. If you're in an area, for example, Kensington and Chelsea, where houses are very expensive, the LUPs in that area are more likely to be even more expensive than that area. And Vacants Perk was actually quite interesting. So extent kind of, you, you can understand it, areas with high deprivation, people are leaving, people don't want to move in, you end up with derelict properties. Uh, the vacants perk, sort of intuitively, you may think the same thing. Well, there's a lot of empty houses in the area. It's probably not very desirable. Actually, you see the opposite. You see areas with high levels of vacant property are actually more likely to have LUPs which are more expensive than the average. And so when you think about the price and, vacants, uh, and the percentage of vacants together, you start thinking, well, does this suggest that actually there's some strange form of demand going on? Thinking back to the leisure-related investment, if people do buy second homes or, or, or second homes on some scale between leisure and investment, you may start thinking, that, well, perhaps there's a relationship between the price of the properties in general, which we've seen, and, and the number of vacant properties in an area. And so that, that led me to this sort of idea that perhaps there's this dual demand going on, where you have demand to live in an area, and demand to buy property in an area. And if you could separate these two things or, or, or combine them together, you'd have an understanding of true demand. And so that, sorry, my, gave me this, this, this concept here, which is um, that LUP percentage, the, the, the percentage of low-use properties in an area is related to demand, total demand, using two sub-demand curves. And so what we see is primary demand, I want to live in this house. Um, when there's very low levels of primary demand, you get higher levels of low-use properties because people are leaving, whoa, people, uh, people are leaving the area and you're getting derelict properties. As demand increases, so an area becomes more desirable, people start moving into the area, the derelict properties may start getting renovated, maybe they're demolished and rebuilt. Um, and, your, and your total number of low-use properties declines. However, once you start incorporating auxiliary demand at low levels of total demand, no one wants a house there. They're like, yeah, leisure-related investment, it was granny's flat, however, the economy's tanking, I'm gonna offload it. If it's in an area where there's people who go, oh, this is a pretty good area, it's quite nice, you know, oh, it's a bit, bit shishi, you know, it's like uh, Hyde Park, ooh, that's quite a good address. People start trying to invest in this area. And so there comes a point where the two demand curves cross and, uh, and overall LUP percentage starts increasing again. 
thought that was a very interesting concept and it was something I wanted to check. Obviously, demand cannot be directly measured. Uh, one way of doing that, supply and demand, is considering the price of a property. However, there is quite a strong relationship between the amount of money houses cost or the average price of a house and the average salary in an area. And so if you just use price, you may actually just be finding rich people live in this area, so the houses are expensive. Poor people live in this area, so the houses aren't. So what I used was the price to earnings ratio or the unaffordability uh, index, which is how much does the average of the, of the house divided by the average salary. And I use that as a, as, a, as a form of demand, as a proxy for demand. And I came up with this. And this is split into three sections. And the first bit I came up with, I just modeled the whole, the whole data set. And um, so what I did was I actually grouped, uh, grouped all my sub-areas into lower demand or high demand and, and averaged the results. So it's a, it's a percentile kind of thing. And I found this sort of wiggly-woggly blob, which was, was definitely not what I was expecting to see. Um, I thought that was a bit sad, uh, so I excluded London and, and I got this, which was exactly what I was expecting to see. Um, excluding London in, uh, in England, the demand curve follows exactly what you'd think you would see if you had primary demand model and an auxiliary demand model. And that was really interesting. I was really pleased to see that, but I wondered why it didn't work when I had London included. So then I looked at London separately and I saw this kind of tick shape, a, a sort of ski jump kind of look. And, and I realized, hang on, what you actually see here is that in London, throughout the whole of London, primary demand is so high that there is no point in London where you get derelict or sort of large numbers of derelict properties. And so down at this end, you have um, areas which are very reasonable to live in, but aren't, you know, maybe thought so glamorous, like Brent and um, Harrow and um, Bermondsey. And there you have very low levels of LUPS, but you still have very high levels of primary demand. So a lot of people want to live there, but no one wants to buy a holiday home there. And then as you move up the unaffordability ratings in London, the number of... Uh, of low-use properties or the percent of low-use properties starts increasing. And so actually you see what you see in London is that London starts at the halfway mark because demand is so high. So overall, um, overall, what am I trying to say with this and what am I trying to do? And really the reason I got into this was because uh, I felt there wasn't a quantitative basis to a lot of discussion on low-use property that was going on in the UK. I think it's a very important issue. The amount of money that the government spends on building new houses is, is phenomenal. And we really should think about how our policy affects things. So what I've shown really is that London experiences the same effects as the rest of the country, just more extreme. Um, and the, the more demand there is in an area, the more LUPs there will be. And one thing that we can really think about when we think about the home building phenomenon and, the, and its relationship to reducing house prices, that building homes reduces primary demand, not auxiliary demand. So if you build a hundred homes and a hundred people want to move in, that's great. But if those hundred homes are immediately low use properties, no one's gained anything. And if you think about um, the areas of London where house prices are highest, for example, Kensington and Chelsea, 
Westminster, these central London regions, there isn't really much space to build new property. And if you do build new property, thinking about the, uh, for example, the Chelsea Barracks development, those properties are hardly going to be uh, reducing the price of anything. It's, it's often a luxury development. But were you to do that, you would still run the risk of simply building properties which automatically, a high proportion of them, flip to low use, in which case you've spent a few billion quid but not actually gained that many new properties. If you build the properties on the outskirts of London, say Zone 6, on the edges of Enfield, or maybe just in the border of the Combe Counties, um, they're guaranteed, almost guaranteed, to be very few LUPs. And you think, this is great, but where are those people coming from? If those people are moving from central London because they go, well, we've been living in this house now for a while, it's great, but we want to start a family. I don't really think we can get anything much bigger in Notting Hill for less than two million pounds. Well, they've built a new development out in Enfield. You move to Enfield, if your house that you've sold then turns into a LUP, there's still been no net gain in housing. And so this is a very important thought I think needs to be had when, when the, the idea that, oh, we can build our way out of the housing crisis. If we try and build our way out of a housing crisis, but new houses are, are basically just being turned into also leisure investment properties, what, uh, what do we gain? And the final point is what is an acceptable level of LUPs? And I had some really interesting conversations with actually um, the Welsh local authorities. And they're doing some quite interesting techniques to try and get a bit of control over the house prices there because especially rural areas, uh, Cornwall, Padstow, I think is about 40 to 50% uh, low-use properties. And in areas of Cumbria, you see exactly the same thing. Uh, North Wales, very high levels of LUPs. What, what do they do? They've got low levels of income, high levels of LUPs. And they said, well, the thing is, no one can afford to buy homes, but the homes are the drivers of the economy. And so they're trying to find a balance where they get the right amount of LUPs to maintain their economy, but without too many detrimental effects to the people who actually live and work in the area. And I think that is also a discussion which needs to be had. When you think about things like central London, as I said, Kensington, Chelsea, 21 and a half billion pounds. If these properties are being bought further to the investment end of the spectrum, we see now the British economy possibly not doing so well, there's uncertainty about the results after Brexit. If, if the British economy starts looking unstable and investors say, well, my investment was great. I used to be able to go to Harrods every weekend, but it looks like the house is going to lose 20% of its value. This is not anyone's primary residence. They don't have ties to the area. They don't need to live and work there. That would be an asset that would be prime for liquidation and moving those funds to another possibly safer security. If we risk, if we have too many laps, we risk some sort of housing instability if there's effectively a run on the housing market. And I think that is also something that we need to think about when we talk about how many low-use properties is acceptable. Okay, thank you very much. I've got my questions here. These are sort of fun facts of the, uh, <laughs> uh, that were found. Um, so if you've got any questions, uh, please, now's the time to ask. Anyone in the room? Yeah. If you could say um, your name and wait until the mic comes for the live stream. Hi, yeah, I'm Tom. Um, so, the question of uh, LUPs in uh, expensive areas, I mean, obviously there are some areas which are, uh, are clearly undesirable and some areas which are clearly desirable where there is that driver there. Um, 
but this has been, I mean, this, the hypothesis that um, empty homes and investment properties have been driving house prices up has been happening pretty much since the, the land registry have been releasing data, or, you know, since, since the 90s, perhaps. Um, is there any way to kind of dis, uh, disconnect your data from the, um, I, guess, I guess it's an assumption that the house price now is based on uh, based based on um, situations that uh, based on circumstances which are known, whereas it may be that the house prices in certain areas have increased more steeply due to you know uh, because mm. because they're desirable low use properties, mm. um, and that's why it looks like a desirable area because the house prices have ex increased steeply because the the properties are low use. Do, do you know what I mean? I'm basically I asking: would it would it be easy to kind of disconnect the um, the the effect of sharper house price increases in an area over time? Yeah, I'm, I think that's a very interesting question. Actually, I you know w with the data set I've got because I don't know how many low use homes there were ten years ago. Um, I was only looking at the value of areas right now and the number of low-use properties right now. Um, and that separation is difficult. You know, the, the old, everyone's favorite phrase, correlation is not causation, is very important. And, and really, I think, you know, you do need to consider this in terms of its sort of theoretical framework of supply and demand and, uh, and this kind of stuff. But if... Uh, I'm sort of trying to answer your question. If, if, for example, I looked at the change in prices over time, so at the moment I'm looking at the actual price now and seeing there's this skew, and if I looked at the change in price and compared it to where we know the low-use properties are, then this may give some uh, separation because we may see, if you see a clear focus where areas which uh, have the highest rates of growth are also the areas with the highest rates of low-use properties, that may help separate those two issues, if that answers your question. Would it, would it be possible to... Uh, would it be theoretically possible to get the, the data the same... Um, it was the LSOA da data, I think, which you based the, the LUPS proportion on. Would it be possible to get that historically? For, for LUPS, almost certainly not. For house prices, definitely. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Any other questions? Um, two questions. The, the expensive range from 2 million to 12 million is quite a large band. It's quite a large band. <laughs> um, some of those 2 million properties in parts of Kensington are really on the border yeah. of the next category. Yeah. Uh, and anywhere else in the country would be considered super expensive. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm just wondering, is there some way you can um, further segment that band for better data? The second question is that um, how are you going to be sharing in this information with local councils that are involved in the planning process? Oh, I thought no one would ask. That's great. <laughs> um, well, uh, the, the first question, yes, you're totally right. The average price of a property in Kensington Chelsea is in fact £2 million. Um, so, uh, like sort of more variable segregation is, is probably uh, a good idea. But the issue you then get is that you've got all of these properties all over the place. The 
council bans are kind of artificial. So places that are close to edges and, and stuff like that, you're like, well, this, you know, Westminster's higher than, or Kensington Chelsea is higher than, than uh, Hammersmith, but this house is on the border. But, you know, I, I, I tried making a sort of low, middle and high kind of weighting and it ended up quite messy. So when I was actually doing uh, the, making the models, I just used, is it higher than average or is it lower than average? And, and that way in, a, in an area, for example, Barrow in Venice, um, which is a very, very uh, cheap area, um, it wasn't important that nothing even made it out of the low price class. What was important was that although everything was in the low price class, the LUPs were cheaper than the average for that local authority. And so using that method, it, it, it does work better, but it is a problem. And your second one about sharing the data, the interesting thing is this data has been really difficult to gather. It's actually an extremely rich data set. Um, I got also all the data on um, people who are excluded from council tax. So that gives things like you know, the amount of um, people in prison or uh, I think uh, ex-soldiers or current serving soldiers and um, various different people who are excluded. It's a very rich, yeah. So it's a very rich, um, a very rich data set in terms of demographics. And there's a lot of potential to do a lot of very interesting research on it, especially because it covers such a wide variety of areas. Unfortunately, um, because the data's copyright of uh, the councils, pretty much no, well, I think five councils gave me permission to share it. So I've got this great data set, which is freely available under freedom of information request, has already been issued and so is in the public domain, but I'm not allowed to manipulate the data and then release a single data set. I know, it's bonkers. So um, actually what I'm working on is essentially an undermining of the Freedom of Information uh, Act, which uh, shows that if you force someone to publish it online and then write a program like a computer script, that does all the gathering of the data and the cleaning of the data, then I give you that computer script, then you'll be able to use all the data that I've worked on, all the data I've cleaned, but I can't be accused of giving you the data. So it's a, it's a bizarre situation, but there is a, a sort of technically a workaround. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Um, but we, yeah, um, particular OGI need to ask you about how they, whether they can get hold of the data sets, um, how, how that would be possible. If they want to get hold of the data sets, uh, I can definitely work with them to get hold of the data sets. And I'm working with a, another organization to try and get as many online, because basically I've spent so much time doing it, I've kind of just gone, I can't do this anymore. I need to actually do my PhD, <laughs> you know? And, um, but I can show them what to do and I can write the script that does the gathering. If they get it online, I can do the, on the other bit. And so that is, is a way around. And I am trying to publish this um, at some point. We'll want to publish this because I do think it's important. And I think it's very important from a government policy and a, a thinking about home's policy point of view. So that, and then I'm actually talking to someone else about, I'm, I'm a terrible writer, so I need you know, collaborators. So, someone um, who will help me write about the, 
uh, problems from the freedom of information point of view because I think that's it's a very important point about an, an accidental weakness. The freedom of Information Act is extremely good, but it has a few critical weaknesses which I think need ironing out. Can I just uh, ask another question? Um, have, have any councils surprised you? Ha have any been particularly helpful? Oh, or? yeah, definitely. Okay. Like, as I said, like, so a lot of the Welsh councils were extraordinarily helpful. Um, some councils, like, there was a council in East Anglia, now I wish I remember which one it was. They took 24 hours to respond. It was just unbelievable. Uh, Lambeth Council was particularly helpful. They, they were my guinea pig. Um, they really, really were a lot more supportive than uh, I was expecting. And they were very, very patient. Um, actually, Kensington and Chelsea, they've, they've giving them, putting them up there, but they're actually pretty helpful as well, very fast. And so it, it, it was quite interesting seeing who was helpful and, and who wasn't. But there are a lot of really helpful councils. And I think a big problem was even some councils that were unhelpful to begin with. Once you get them on the phone, you have a conversation, they realise there's nothing frightening going on. They're like, OK, cool, let's work together. And they're very cooperative. So it, it's been brought in a very good, positive experience uh, dealing with the councils. You talked about um, using this data for planning information. Um, certainly for places like London, would overlaying transport networks and availability in central London for travel help also give more advice around where more property should be built? I mean, I mean that's, that's definitely a bit out of, of where I am, but yes, I'd, I'd imagine it would. I mean, the difficulty with London is where do you build it? You know, and that's, that's really the core thing. And I think you, know, you see a lot of the new developments, even, even like fancy developments, being really pushed out into the further zones, you know, pushing into the green belt, because that's where there's space. Um, and I mean, it, it kind of comes back to like, what are we building houses for? And, and I I'm, and I'm, I'm don't want anyone to say, you know, oh, I'm saying no one should have a second home or anything like that. It's, it's more what are we trying to do and what are we trying to achieve? Because there's a lot of money sloshing around. And we should, when, we, when we're using public money, we should be sure it is having a, a positive effect. And so if we're just building properties which end up causing uh, investors to earn a lot of money but doesn't actually resolve any housing issues, then we're probably not using our resources wisely. It's about workers getting to work, so, for example, low-income workers who are very valuable, like exactly. nurses, etc. Exactly. They need to be able to get to work. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, that's one of the things. Like, if you, you know, people have said, well, you know, if you're, you know, living in a council house, you, you can't be picky if you have, then have to live on the outskirts of London. I'm like, if you're living in central London in a however many million pounds house you want, you, you've got to accept that someone's got to be cleaning your house, you know, or someone's going to be serving you in Tesco's, you know, and those people also need places to live. And it's unreasonable when you've got hardworking people that they need to spend two hours traveling into work because their previous, you know, previous housing estates has been converted into a two million pound block of flats. But for government policy, it's been very difficult and forced councils to sell. I think the threshold excuse me, it was any council house that's more than a million pounds across the country that became vacant, the councils had to sell it. And the problem for places like Kensington and Chelsea and Westminster is they were forced <laughs> to sell and you can't replace yeah. the property stock within the boroughs, which is why they've made investments in public housing on the fringes, Hounslow, Barrow, etc. 
Yeah, no, I think, I think again, that's a very good point. And I think one of the goals that I'd like to achieve with this uh, research and with this work is actually, this is, this is a quantitative piece of work, but I actually think it's quite important that qualitative researchers start approaching and starting thinking about how this quantitative data affects the theories that they've thought about and the discussions they're having on housing policy, because that I simply can't do. I don't know how to do it. But I think housing policy debate has been kind of stuck in a rut because there just hasn't been enough data to discuss on. And I'm trying to put this data out there and allow the conversation to move forward so that we can discuss these tricky issues like you mentioned. Um, so yeah, I agree with that, and I, I think that's the that's always the the problem with um, that qualitative research is that it always th there's always a, a blockage on the quantitative research because it's you know a lot of the data is proprietary. Somebody's got to do the research. It's got to be published. It's got to be taken seriously and whatever. So to me, something like this is all about unblocking the pipeline. Um, so to go back to um, earlier on. Uh, you mentioned about the proprietary data, so you can't release the you can't release your kind of uh, cleaned and prepared data. You could maybe, if you chose, re release your your method so that other people could do it. The actual raw data that you got um, is that is that publicly available? Is it on the raw what data do they know? is technically publicly available. Over the majority, I didn't when I started doing this. I didn't know about the the website. What do they know? Right. And so basically, the scheme that I've realised is that I can get my request my own FOI through what do they know and get that raw data put up. So I'm working with one organisation at the moment and trying to get um, some of London put up. Maybe we can do a bit of work with uh, the Leeds group, put more data up because the more data that's on ODI or on the what do they know, the bigger you can funnel, the, the more data you can just funnel into what's technically a publicly available data set. Because a lot of the data when you get it, it's, it's quite tricky to work with. And so obviously I spent a long time developing uh, routines which clean and package the data uh, quite efficiently. And so um, ideally, any time it gets published, I'd know about it, add it onto the general script. And then over, over time, the Excel spreadsheet basically just gets longer and longer and longer. And you get more and more data from more and more parts of the country. And we don't breach any any laws. <laughs> um, yeah, it's amazing what you're doing. Where do I uh, where do I look for it? <laughs> yeah, um, well, the all the code is on GitHub, um, and uh, I've written about it on my blog, uh, Some Squared Error, and uh, yeah, that's that's about it at the moment. It's sort of come to a bit of a stop <laughs> because uh, I've got I've been having to work on uh, on the on the stuff I'm paid for, um, but hopefully. I will be able to get something published some point next year and really try and push the availability of this data. Ideally, um, the uh, Information Commissioner's Office would realise the problem this has caused and push for a slight change in the law. Essentially, the law is at the moment all data sets should have uh, an open government licence and that results in no data sets having an open government licence. And so, I, you know, ideally they would change it to all government data sets have to have an open government license unless there is some legal reason why not. Because at the moment, the position is, yes, we agree your freedom of information request is right. Yes, we are prepared to give you the data. No, you're not allowed to give that data to anyone else, which doesn't make sense because the other person can just ask for it. 
in your case, the license would cover a data set which would include personally ident identifiable Nothing. data. No, no, it doesn't. Because it would be creating a new data set. That no, because the data, that, that's the whole point of the template. It doesn't include any personally identifiable data. But that data. would be a new data set that they'd create with, under the template, isn't it? Mm hmm doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> Are there links to uh, your GitHub and to your uh, name on what do they know on your blog? Yeah, on the blog, yeah. Wicked, thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, any other questions? Hannah, were there any more online? No? no? Okay, I think we're actually just about at the end. So um, please join me in thanking Jonathan. <laughs> if you would like to watch again, we'll have the, the video online. So if you want to share it with anyone, then it'll be on the, uh, the web page of the ODI site. Um, next week, uh, the lecture is on classifiers and textual ana analysis within classifiers. Um, so do join us next week if you can. And thanks for coming. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.